Hey, it's Greg Brady. Welcome to the Toronto Today podcast. Glad that you could find us for November the 10th this Wednesday. Talked about the, in essence, shadow cabinet that Aaron O'Toole put together. Aaron O'Toole has been under siege just a bit since the election result came in, won the popular vote, but didn't gain any momentum in terms of seats in the House of Commons. And there have been questions about whether or not the Conservatives want to push forward with him as leader. Well, he put together, again, critically acclaimed, a good team to challenge the federal Liberals in a minority government position. A lot of props for Pierre Polyev as finance critic. Michelle Rempel-Garner, a star in the party as well. You don't have to look at everything the Conservatives are doing and say, well, that's a team, a well-oiled machine. They've got it all together. But we talk about it on the show out of the gate. And with David Aiken, chief political correspondent for Global News as well. Uh, we have a lot on the show. Mike Bradley from Sarnia with an entertaining interview about the dropping, potentially, of the PCR test. He's got new confidence and new hope. He'll tell you what that's all about as well. It's the Toronto Today podcast. Great that you could join us. It's up next. Okay, this is the track we referenced last hour. Two Tribes by Frankie Hollywood. There's a video, and there's a guy playing Ronald Reagan. And that was a thing to do back in 1984. Was like, I, I remember going to an elementary school dance with a Ronald Reagan mascot. That was just something you did. This is way before Point Break, when the ex-presidents robbed banks. And Keanu Reeves was like, oh, man, I can't figure out who's doing this. That's the best. I, honestly, that's not good. Um, but Patrick Swayze is one of the ex-presidents. Um, and he's fighting Konstantin Chernyanko. That's not a guy the Leafs signed uh, in the seventh round, and then Harold Ballard's like, what are you doing signing Soviet players? Get out of here. Konstantin Chernyanko. I know you think he played briefly with Thomas Caberlet. No, he didn't. He was the Russian... He was the Soviet premier for 13 months. He died in office. But let me tell you a little bit about Konstantin Chernyanko, and then I'll talk about Aaron O'Toole. There's no parallel there. I didn't mean to do that. Here's health pro- This is up from his Wikipedia page. Health problems, death, and legacy. Chernyenko started smoking at age nine. No, I said nine. And he was always known to be a heavy smoker as an adult. Can I get a source for this? I'm really shocked that he started smoking at age nine and turned into and remained a heavy smoker. Long before nine. I don't know a human being that smoked before 12. Nine single digits long before his election as general secretary, Jernienko developed emphysema and right-sided heart failure. Not great, Bob. In 1983, he'd been absent from his duties for three months due to bronchitis pleurisy. You don't want pleurisy. I don't know if there's a vaccine for pleurisy, but I would take it. And pneumonia. This is my favorite quote. And then I'm going to move on. Not, not keeping it very long here. Historian John Lewis Gaddis describes Chernyenko as, quote, now I like this quote so much, I don't know if I can use it later today about anybody, but I'm going to try, as, quote, an enfeebled geriatric, so zombie-like as to be beyond assessing intelligence reports, alarming or not. An enfeebled geriatric, so zombie-like as to be beyond assessing intelligence reports, alarming or not. And after uh, John Lewis Gaddis wrote that, uh, dude dies like seven months later. He didn't, uh, it didn't last. It was not a successful run of things. An enfeebled geriatric so zombie-like as to be beyond assessing intelligence reports is a hell of a promo for a radio show. I'm just leaving it. I'm not, I'm just leaving that out there. I'll take, if no one else wants it, I'll take it. Konstantin Chernyanko. Let me shift gears to Aaron O'Toole. I thought Aaron O'Toole had a really good day yesterday. You know, I'm, I think he had a rough weekend. He had um, a MP 
uh, basically <laughs> rip into, well, um, the the party's polio policy. And Aaron O'Toole's like, we have a polio policy? I don't want to have a polio policy. I don't want any of my uh, potential cabinet members or MPs mentioning polio. Don't do that. I got a, just a brief list here. I'm, I, you know, 20 or 25 things I'd like you not to do in a national television interview. Uh, compare COVID to polio. That's one of them. I don't know if it's one or 25, but it's on the list. So Aaron O'Toole is like, damn. And I told you yesterday, I think Justin Trudeau, he's able to punch. When you get in the corner, uh, he can punch. He's good at it. And you don't have to love that he is, uh, but that's what leaders and that's what experienced politicians do. They punch. When he had a chance to punch Andrew Scheer, Andrew Scheer is not telling you what he thinks about abortion, about same-sex marriage. And Scheer's like, kind of like nodding like, stop talking about me like that. That's good news for Justin Trudeau. Now, when Trudeau's in the corner, does he dance? Does he perform? Does he do, do people go, well, there you go. He used to be a drama teacher, so he's doing that. Yes, also yes. But two things can be true at the same time here. But I thought Aaron O'Toole had a good day yesterday, and let me tell you why. He went with he he named a shadow cabinet to counterbalance the Liberals' cabinet, and I think he did a great job of it. Pierre Polyev's going to go back and be the finance critic. That's good. That's a good thing. I know people were thinking, oh, that old phrase, you know, uh, keep your friends close and your enemies even closer. Well, if Pierre Pierre Polyev has leadership aspirations, if indeed he does. Aaron O'Toole can't worry about that right now. He's got Poly, Polyev's on the bus. P squared is on the bus. That's how it's going to go. And that's how it needs to go. And to be perfectly honest, to go into finance, he knows his stuff. You don't have to agree with his principles, but he's well studied and he's got a phenomenal economics background. And not just that, he sounds it. And there's a difference between the two things. When you check both those boxes, that ends up being a good thing. You can sound intelligent and not necessarily be. There's a there's something still called being articulate. And there's something to say that it still matters. It matters in what Pierre Polyev does. It matters for university professors. It matters, I guess, to some extent in what, you know, what what I do or what people on Global News Radio 640 does. It still matters. Teachers, it matters. You know that. Also, former health critic Michelle Rempel-Garner, a, a star in the party, she's that, will be the shadow minister for natural resources. That's a fantastic move as well, okay? There's going to be some checks and balances, okay? She represents people that don't feel they're getting heard properly, and you can make the case that they aren't. We got to get off fossil fuels. Okay, fine. But Garner sits there right in Calgary Nose Hill. That's her riding. And that's a very smart hire from Aaron O'Toole to shove into that position. Now, I'm going to come back to Paul Yev in a sec. People might say, where's Leslin Lewis? Is O'Toole keeping people who uh, ran against him for the leadership out of the cabinet? Well, I'm not sure about that, but he already, you know, kind of bruised up the MP on the weekend for talking about polio, uh, Marilyn Gladue, the one from Sarnia, who's going to start this cute little adorable like shadow, you know, not not a shadow cabinet, but a, 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 you know, a partial caucus to talk about people's rights, freedoms and liberties. That's what the whole party can do. 
You can go in hard if Trudeau locks down again. You can go in hard on vaccine distribution, procurement, etc. if things go south. Of course, you can do all that stuff. But I don't feel like Leslin Lewis. I, I, I see people talking, well, he snubbed Leslin Lewis. A snub is when you deserve something. A snub is a guy that, you know, doesn't go to the NHL All-Star game, but he's supposed to or movie or, or you know, best actor for the Grammys. You, you can't you can't make Leslin Lewis finance critic. There's not the experience there. There's not the gravitas there. You put Pierre Polyev back in that spot. You can't make Leslin Lewis shadow uh, Stephen Gilbo and, and talk about the environment. You can't do that. By the way, uh, Lewis, not much different than Gladue. She's raised a ton of eyebrows with social media posts about COVID-19. She's not even talking about the choice about vaccinating kids, which are, is a fair conversation. She's talking about whether the vaccines will work or not. That's not that's not going to fly. That's not, even even with a social conservative wing that O'Toole has to deal with. And even with the party's Western base, that's not going to work either. So Leslie Lewis wasn't snubbed there. You can't play the race card when it comes to Leslie Lewis. You can't do that, can you? No one's really doing that, are they? By the way, as smart as this move is, I would say also, sometimes in sports, I'll say it again, it's about matchups. Do you match up well against another player at another position? Is, uh, you know, how hard the Montreal Canadiens worked a good matchup for the Toronto Maple Leafs? Not necessarily. The Leafs have four stars. If their four stars aren't going, the rest of the team isn't going. It turned out to be a good matchup for the Canadians to play the Leafs as bad as they were in the regular season. And let me say this, Pierre Polyev's a good matchup for Christian Freeland in terms of financial experience, in terms of being able to articulate financial problems. I think that's a bad matchup for the Liberals. So Aaron O'Toole's done the right thing here. Does Polyev want O'Toole's job eventually? Maybe, maybe so. But there's an ethics and a code, and Polyev will wait his turn. And O'Toole can't afford to push Pierre Polyev to the back benches and put inexperienced people in important jobs. He wants to be prime minister. And maybe it'll happen, and maybe it won't. But Aaron O'Toole, I think, won the day yesterday by putting smart, experienced people, Rempel Garner, Polyev, in really important roles. And he didn't say, those people might have knives out for me. You can't worry about that kind of stuff. you got to be laser focused on what you need to do. By the way, we'll have Jugmeet Singh on the program a little later on the week. He weighed in again. I want you to hear some audio from uh, Jugmeet on the idea of a coalition government. Now, to quote the Princess Bride, he was asked that question. I'm not sure the questioner uh, quite knows, I'm mangling the quote, quite knows what that word means. He keeps saying it. I don't think you know exactly what it means. I think there will be an arrangement and the NDP will get things for backing the liberals on things that might make them go, eh, it's not exactly right up our alley, but we'll do it because it's a quid pro quo. But that's not what a coalition government is. Here's Jagmeet Singh talking about it yesterday. Well, I said they, they shouldn't expect our support and take it for granted on anything. They, they just shouldn't expect that we're going to support anything unless it's actually going to help people. So uh, if they want to bring in uh, tax breaks that help out the super rich, they can't count on us for support. They could probably go to the conservatives. If they want to do something that hurts workers, like they've done in the past, they're not going to be able to count on us for support. They can probably, again, work with the conservatives as they've done in the past. But our support should not be taken for granted. We want to work together if it helps people. 
We will not work together if it hurts people. He's the kingmaker. He can make all this happen. Saying, remember, really, you know, I think a disappointing election result. We talked about it after the election. Um, you guys talked about it with me. We put smart people on. We had a conversation about it. Nobody was really thrilled. Nobody was really thrilled. O'Toole won the popular vote, didn't gain any seats. Uh, nothing really from the Bloc Québécois that was significant either. And Jugmeet Singh certainly, uh, you know, with some rancor and dysfunction within the Green Party, I don't think there's any question about that, couldn't grab the votes that split from the Green Party. Those people either didn't vote, went liberal, or went absolutely rogue and went somewhere else, conservative or, or yeah, PPC, okay? Um, but Jugmeet Singh didn't benefit from that. Here's him quickly talking about the fact that it's a it's not going to happen. There won't be a quote unquote coalition. But I think you can read between the lines here. There is no discussion at all of a coalition. And that is a firm no for me. There is no there's not going to be any coalition at all. Uh, but I am prepared to find ways to, to work together. And I've made that clear uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. I want to work to deliver more help to people. I want to make sure this parliament works for people. And I want to respect the decision that Canadians have made in this election. They sent us here to work for them. They expect us to work for them. And that means, in my mind, to make sure Parliament actually works to deliver what people need. And so when it comes to helping people, I'm ready to work together. If it comes to hurting people or making a decision that's going to make life difficult for people, the Liberals can't count on my support. Okay, Jugmeet Singh will join us on Toronto today, tomorrow on Remembrance Day. Uh, I'm eager to dig into a lot of that stuff and a lot of election reaction from him coming up as well. Okay, well, we talked about Ottawa, top of the hour at 7 o'clock. Some of the things Justin Trudeau was able to dig in on, vaccination policies, he was certainly on the campaign trail, and able to be on the offensive. When an incumbent can go on the offense... It's a good thing. And Justin Trudeau was able to do that. That was the mantra out there. Hey, he can't even get his own party vaccinated. There's so much division and a rancor within the conservatives themselves. And that has borne out to be true. That said, I thought they hit some home runs with their shadow cabinet appointment yesterday, putting it all together for us. Uh, and he was just brilliant on election night. I'm sure he's had time to recover since then. David Aiken, chief political correspondent for Global News, joining us. It's great to have you on here in Toronto. How are you? Joining us. It's great to have you on here in Toronto. I'm doing very well, have recovered, and uh, and you know, you're quite right to connect both the shadow cabinet to the vaccines, because they are connected, because there's a vaccine story in who is not in cabinet. I, I too, I do think, I think O'Toole hit some home runs with some of the appointments, but I think he sent a message mm. by leaving a couple of people out, and let's start with the two people out. One is Leslin Lewis. Remember Leslin Lewis? Yeah. She ran for the leadership against O'Toole. She got the most votes on the first ballot, and she finished third. And she's not in the shadow cabinet. Why? Because she's on social media questioning the effectiveness of vaccines. And that is outside mainstream opinion. And O'Toole doesn't want any of that. How about Marilyn Gladue from Sarnia? She was on the on some weekend talk shows talking about that COVID may not be such a big deal and vaccines may not be this and that. She apologized for those remarks yesterday. She withdrew them. And she used to be Andrew Shear's health critic. She's not a critic at all. She's not in the shadow cabinet. She's in the backbench. Again, there's O'Toole sending a message. I, I'm, you know, everybody has to be vaccinated in my front bench. Everybody in, in his caucus, if they want to participate in the House of Commons, that, that's the rule. And O'Toole and all the conservatives want all their shadow cabinet in the House of Commons, in person, going toe to toe with their their Trudeau counterparts. Um, and I'm not sure of Leslie Lewis's vaccine status. You know, and and O'Toole refuses to disclose the vaccine status of, of his caucus generally. Mm. So 
I don't know what we assume about that, but O'Toole does not want people in his caucus, uh, in his cabinet, rather, shadow cabinet, that uh, have any sense of vaccine hesitancy. The home runs, there's two, I think, right off the top, and that's putting Pierre Polyev back at, as the critic for finance. But Polyev, uh, he, he really gets under the skin mm. of Trudeau cabinet ministers. He, when he was up against Bill Morneau, Oh, gosh, it just wasn't a fair fight, uh, to be quite frank. So I think a lot of conservatives are really happy about that appointment. And the other interesting one is Michelle Rempel-Garner out in Calgary. She had been the health critic. She moves over to natural resources, and I think that's a really smart fit. First of all, Rempel-Garner, yes, she, she's all into let's move to clean energy and, and low-carbon economy, but she also wants to protect the oil and gas industry in Alberta, in B.C., etc. And she ends up matching up against... The new natural resources minister, it's Vancouver's John Wilkinson. And Wilkinson is a very capable cabinet minister. So is Rempel Gardner as a critic. So I like to, I'm going to enjoy watching that. It's a very important file. It's going to be important for the Trudeau government. And Rempel Gardner is going to be on that. And then, as I say, Polyev is the other uh, sort of home run, if you will, on uh, in terms of picks for the shadow cabinet to um, essentially keep in check uh, the finance minister, Krista Freeland. David, I will come back to Polyev. I'm curious, like I, I've heard it described as, well, it's a snub for Leslie Lewis. That's more, a, you know, a sports term or, well, you know, a movie doesn't get picked for best picture. I'm just I'm just not sure the experience was there. So I think there's a lack of experience. But, yeah, it's the social media thing. It's it's the prominent comment like that. Um, it doesn't really matter if she's a social conservative. It's it's the anti-vax thing. And, and O'Toole, he might have m- maybe could take somebody under his wing who's got the experience of a Rempel, a Rempel Garner. But Leslie Lewis doesn't have that kind of she doesn't have that kind of credit in the bank built up yet. I, I don't know if I agree with you. I think when you run for the leadership, you build up some some experience that is valuable for that sort of thing. And there's lots of particular shadow cabinet jobs you could have had that may not be, you know, so high profile. And I'm going to single out another couple of Ontario conservatives that are, you know, uh, maybe not a lot of experience, and they have some pretty prominent shadow cabinet jobs. One is Melissa Lanceman up in Thornhill. Mm-hmm. She is the new uh, conservative MP for that riding. Now, Melissa Lanceman spent a lot of years as uh, you know, senior communications aide for Harper-era cabinet ministers. So she's been inside the, the tent, if you will, in terms of what it means to be a cabinet minister. But she just got elected, and transport is a big deal. Her opposite will be Mississauga's Omar Algabra. Transport, that's airlines, that's, we're talking about, um, you know, funding and tourism for airlines that are, that are suffering. So that's Melissa Lanceman, a rookie, who's going to take that on. I, I'm interested to see that matchup. Here's one down in Niagara Falls, a conservative, Tony Baldinelli. He's a two-time MP, but I don't think he's been in the front bench before. And he's got a unique job from O'Toole. He's the critic for manufacturing. Now, there's no minister of manufacturing. I'm assuming this is going to be the industry minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne, that Baldinelli is going to keep an eye on. But I think that's interesting because I think there's a lot of votes, particularly in southwestern Ontario, let's call it Ontario's Rust Belt, where there's manufacturing jobs. People are still worried about them. Niagara Falls, certainly that part of Ontario. And so here's Tony Baldinelli going to step up and try and make some hay about the importance of manufacturing jobs in in this province. So I think those are a couple of smart picks. And again, you know, uh, Lewis may not have some experience as an MP, but, you know, there's there's some other there's some other shadow cabinet members who are also brand new, just got elected and they made the front bench. But they're all about they're in favor of vaccines. 
David Aiken, uh, kind of to join us on Toronto today. I loved what you said about Polyev, and and I think it's accurate with where he went with Bill Morneau. And yeah, to to go with the sports uh, matchup concept, I think Polyev's a bad matchup for Christian Freeland. I know she's got experience as a financial journalist, but Polyev's been a bulldog about this stuff, and and will dig right in. And and it, it it's very personal too. Christian Freeland obviously dug in on on Aaron O'Toole. Um, I don't think the conservatives have forgotten the the video tweeted out by her that that Twitter was quote-unquote manipulated media uh, about Aaron O'Toole and privatized healthcare. I know that's a different department, but um, but I think if they feel Freeland, especially if they feel Freeland's the heir apparent to, to Justin Trudeau, um, again, to go with sports, you, you put your best man or woman on that job, and that's Pierre Polyev. I think so. And, and now, Polyev recently has been really emphasizing inflation. And, and the conservatives generally believe inflation uh, is a real problem. And sure enough, we've had record inflation that sort of for, for the last couple of months. We don't know if that's going to be – that inflation will stick, whether it's just a result of essentially pandemic recoveries. But nonetheless, inflation, inflation, inflation is what polyev has been all about. But that's interesting because normally conservatives would be about deficits, deficits, deficits. Mm-hmm. And we know that during the election campaign, the conservatives really had a really loosey-goosey approach to deficits. It's like, oh, we'll balance it in 10 years, and, the, and literally the budget will balance itself. That was the conservative plan. So for you know, Polyev has been a bit of a deficit hawk over the years, will he tone that down a bit and really focus on inflation? And the two are kind of related, to be honest. But that, I think, is what you're going to see is a real focus on inflation from the conservatives and from Polyev. What are you doing about it? Uh, that, uh, and that's something that has a lot of people uh, you know, concerned, people who are getting into the mortgage market and they've just taken on a big mortgage. Are they looking at, oh, my God, I won't be able to afford my mortgage in a few years? So, uh, And that goes to young families, and that's there's your voters. So you're right. That's going to be an interesting uh, focus uh, and match uh, to watch on, uh, particularly on how they frame the issues for the electorate. David Aiken, uh, uh, of course, joining us on Toronto Today. I know we're tied for time, so last one for me, Jugmeet Singh had to sort of fend off, um, you know, not accusatory questions, but questions about a quote-unquote coalition. Um, he can't talk about, you know, any kind of backroom deals. He can't talk about what the NDP wants in return for some support on some liberal issues. He's been very publicly critical of Justin Trudeau, that's for sure, but is he in a better position of power, let's say, than he was in the fall of, of 2019? Is Has the relationship grown in his role as kingmaker how do you view it he's in a better position because he had a better campaign won more votes than 2019 even though they only got one more seat so he's better that way there's not going to be a coalition coalition in parliamentary terms means new democrats would sit in justin trudeau's cabinet that's not going to happen but will there be agreements like there was in the last parliament where the where the, the ndp says you want your budget passed okay we'll vote for your budget but we want this that and this and then there's that horse trading and that's entirely normal and that definitely is what happening is there's some informal talks going on about that but even this whiff of a coalition has given Aaron O'Toole something to beat up the, his opponents about and that's right out of the Stephen Harper playbook going all the way back to 2007 when you know there was going to be a coalition with Stefan Dion and Jack Layton and Gilles Decep. Um and that's what conservatives I guarantee you if you if you're on a conservative mailing list you're going to see fundraising about that oh my god the liberal NDP coalition the radical coalition but it's nothing it's nothing exactly like that it's the standard deal making between a left of center liberal party and a lefter of center new democrat party david love your stuff thanks very much for uh, contributing this morning really appreciate it no problem have a great day cheers david aiken chief political correspondent for global news 
The PCR test, is it holding up travel at the border? Monday's like, the border's open, the land border. Here comes this car and that car, and it's busy. But I, all those people may have just gone, and they're not coming back for months. Not too many day trips, not too many weekend trips. Let's find out what Rachel Gilmore's uh, got going. She's got a piece up on globalnews.ca about this. Rachel, it does feel like that's the big gap right now is day trips, weekend trips. Uh, people won't make these until the PCR test requirements lifted. No, it doesn't seem like it because it's just so expensive. I mean, it, you could do a day trip and get vaccinated and, or sorry, get your uh, rapid test done, uh, your PCR test in mm -hmm. Canada. Um, and then you are allowed to use that test for the next 72 hours as your proof of a negative test result. So if you get that test done in Canada, go down to Watertown, New York, do some shopping and drive back over the border, you can still use that test you took in Canada, which kind of, you know, it's a bit confusing. That's what the Bordertown mayors are saying, because what's the point in having to prove that you're, uh, you know, that you don't have COVID to get back in when you took that test before you left? <laughs> so, um, but that being said, if you do get tested in the States, it can be super expensive and uh, it can be, you know, for a family of four, up to a thousand bucks. So it's definitely not uh, cheap. So uh, many people won't be able to do it. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And and there's you, you lay out some of that timeline. There's, um, I won't say insane, but I'll take the S away. There's an inaneness to the concept of bringing your negative test from Canada. And as you said, let's let's not even go shopping. Let's go to a Buffalo Sabres game where they don't have a vaccine you know, passport. And so you don't know who's vaccinated and who isn't. Let's go to a concert, right? Crowded, sweaty concert with 500, 600 people there at a club in Buffalo or or uh, or whatnot, and then hop back over with no reason, like no knowledge as to whether you've been exposed to it or not. Like that's not that's not necessarily following the science, is it? No, exactly. It, it just doesn't really make a lot of sense. I mean, even if it does take a few days for the symptoms to show up, you'll be back in Canada <laughs> having those symptoms, right? So it doesn't sort of quash that concern about. Uh, you know, whether you could go to the States, attend that sports game and get sick. I mean, um, it, it just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Now, in the context of maybe a longer vacation where you're mm -hmm. going to be in the States for, you know, a couple of weeks, I can see the logic there. At least it would kind of minimize the, the likelihood that uh, that you'd be bringing it in because you would kind of catch that. And PCR tests are the gold standard. They're really good. They're super uncomfortable if you have yeah. been unlucky enough to have had one. But they are really, really good. So, you know, there there is a bit of a logic there, provided there's still quite a few cases in the States. And, uh, you know, we still have unvaccinated kids and whatnot here. But when it comes to the short trips, you know, a lot of border town mayors, a lot of tourism uh, industry folks, they're all saying they don't really get it. Rachel Gilmore is joining us uh, from Global News. She wrote about the potential for uh, all of us to uh, cross the border, but exactly that, how many of us will. What was the emotion like when you spoke to some of uh, of the mayors? They recognize that th these border town mayors, Niagara Falls, Sarnia, Windsor, they get that the part of their job is is obviously the flow from point A to B uh, between Canada and the United States, and, and that, that's just been stifled. They ha they haven't been able to do their job. They haven't been able to, to provide that window to support businesses and, and business owners in their cities. No, exactly. They just sounded incredibly, incredibly frustrated. And, you know, one thing that really uh, struck me was when um, I believe it was the Niagara Falls mayor was talking about how they basically have one big city that's cut in half by a border. 
So, you know, he said, imagine your city, all of a sudden, there's just sort of this this wall that you can't pass in the middle of it. Um, And and that's sort of what happened for those individuals. So, you know, um, I I think that having this sort of added requirement, I mean, imagine that if you wanted to go to, uh, I mean, I'm not super familiar with Toronto, I'm in Ottawa, but (laughs) you wanted to go to the mall on one side of town and, you know, your favorite restaurant on the other side of town, you had to pay to get a test to be able to do that. I mean, it, it just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense for those individuals who are right there, um, you know, kind of living in those in those border towns right, that they might just be crossing for, you know, the day to visit family or something like that, or even a couple hours. Um, it, it doesn't make a ton of sense. And that's what the mayors were saying. They're really frustrated by it. And they just really want to see this requirement drop. Feel, and it feels like that may end up happening. Uh, e- even if you get, you know, Dr. Tam to talk on the record and, and someone was able to last week suggesting, well, this is something we're keeping a close eye on, as opposed to, you know, I, I know when uh, when Patty Idu did her interview with Mercedes Stevenson, she's like, well, there's still a travel ban in place. Nobody should be going anywhere. That And then a week later, all of a sudden, poof, there's no travel ban. I do think we're headed in that direction. The, the great question will be right timing. End of the month? Is it before Christmas? Is it early in the new year? There's a lot of people thinking, well, that would make my Christmas complete to be able to go either shop or see relatives or see friends or do something fun um, and, uh, and, and not have to worry about the cost of the testing. Yeah. So, I mean, we don't have a whole lot of an idea of when this could happen. And what's frustrating is that the officials and the government sort of voices aren't being very helpful in that respect. Um, All I keep hearing from them is we're looking into it. We're, Mm. you know, we're exploring it. We, uh, you know, we're following the science, but then they also kind of uh, follow that up with, but, you know, we are still in a pandemic. So, you know, we have to do the things that keep people safe. And, And it is a very tough one because there is an element of the testing that, you know, can help um, to keep numbers down a little bit, case counts down. Um, You know, it's going to dissuade people from traveling and it will catch quite a few um, cases where there are some. Um, But that being said, one date that I did hear mentioned was the um, uh, November 21st. Um, That came up a fair bit with the mayors because they said that's sort of the next big kind of date when it comes to all of the Canada-U.S. border measures. um, And they're hoping that maybe they could see this requirement dropped at that time. Well, and that leads into Black Friday, doesn't it? Uh, the week of shopping. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, there's no doubt that, you know, uh, upstate New York or, you know, suburban Detroit, Michigan, um, they would look at those numbers. I think just even even with my sports uh, background, I think it's 22 percent of Buffalo Bills tickets are usually uh, used up by Canadians. And so they've they've been finding a way to fill the gaps. But yeah, like shopping, games like that, uh, that there's a massive Canadian presence, a presence that's needed to fill, uh, fill it up. Absolutely, yeah. So I, I think that, you know, these sort of border towns, they, they're really hurting because of the lack of tourism. Um, one thing that uh, the Niagara Falls mayor said is, you know, we try to rebrand ourselves. We try to find other ways of bringing in income than tourism. But when you have one of these famous natural wonders in your backyard, it's kind of hard to uh, to pivot to something else. People, That's what people want to come for. Um, so, you know, it, 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 these towns really rely on tourism. They rely on that cross-border traffic. And it's, uh, it's definitely hurting their bottom line, having these rapid tests in place, that's for sure. Give us your read um, before you go on on just the lay of the land in Ottawa right now. Um, I know there's been some, uh, you know, articles written and conversations had about an uptick in cases, but 
Many of the epidemiologists I talk to point out, well, how many of those cases are fully vaccinated, asymptomatic people? Schools have gone better than anyone possibly could expect it in terms of whether they're open or closed. And Rachel, what we're seeing is an uptick uh, that that many have pointed out to me is in smaller towns, rural areas. I, I would guess a city like Ottawa that's that's had its moments, a lot like Toronto, a lot like Peel region here, where it's been very, very difficult and very locked down. Um, it, there's there's got to be a freeing sense of where it's at right now. Yeah, I mean, because of the high rates of vaccination in, you know, areas like Ottawa, we're, we're doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that Ontario, I think, reported um, 600 new cases on Friday, I think it was, mm-hmm. or uh, maybe Sunday. <laughs> my my uh, I was off last week, so mm-hmm. I'm definitely still in a little vacation mode with my timelines here. But, um, you know, it, we're not seeing the kind of crazy numbers that we saw a little while ago. But that being said, in areas where there are lower rates of vaccination, uh, that's where you're kind of seeing a little bit of an uptick as restrictions start to lift. I mean, uh, people are starting to go out dancing now. They're starting to go out to um, these kind of concert spaces and whatnot. And it's, it's, you know, for those who are fully vaccinated, that's not really an issue. Um, Mm -hmm. But for those who are unvaccinated, that's where we're seeing a lot of the cases concentrate right now. So really the best thing you can do to stay safe, to keep your loved ones safe, to keep the kids who can't be vaccinated safe is to get vaccinated. Bingo. Uh, Rachel Gilmore, you can read her work on globalnews.ca. It's great catching up with you. Thanks for making time for our show. Thanks so much, Greg. Uh, Our next guest, uh, no doubt, you know, vocal about the PCR test. Many mayors of border cities have. And this is the uh, border closest to where I grew up. So I know about crossing uh, the Blue Water Bridge on a frequent basis. He is Mike Bradley, the mayor of Sarnia. It's great to have you on. Thanks for making the time for us here in Toronto. We appreciate it. Thanks so much, Greg. Totally. By the way, you've been you've been elected and reelected five different times as Sarnia mayor. That's have you ever Googled and and thought who are other five time incumbent mayors? That's a great record. Right. Like you're you're, that's a lot of winning. Well, Greg, actually, I have to correct you. It's 10 times. 10. No, 10 times as mayor. I went to Cuba once for vacation. I thought this Castro guy, he's on to something. Well, I don't uh, have all the mayors ask me. Uh, the mayor of Milton actually uh, has been in mayor longer That's than right. I have. That's right. But listen, I don't know what the formula is. I, I tell mayors that ask me, I said, simple, be yourself. Just be yourself, and it'll work out. And everybody knows you in Sarnia, right? Like, do, like, do people, and so that's good and bad, I suppose, on a regular basis. I don't know. I don't, like, do you ever wear a disguise out just to get, like, lunch, and you're like, I don't want to, oh, don't come up to me about this four-way stop sign. Like, you ever, has that ever happened? Well, it does. Actually, right now, having serious problems with anti-vaxxers who have escalated uh, their campaigns against people that are pro-vaccine. But I can tell you, a number of years ago, I, uh, before COVID, I did have a, a death, serious death threat, and the media asked me, is there anyone in this town that would have wanted to harm you? And I said, well, listen, at some point, all of them. If you're making decisions and you're leading, you know at some point you're going to make someone happy. And the analogy I always use is about Scotty Bowman and the Red Wings, mm-hmm. that they hate his guts 364 days a year. But on the 365th, when they raise the Stanley Cup, they love the guy. Yeah, I, uh, I covered that team. There's a lot of people, uh, you know, still unwilling, I think, to go on the record about that. Uh, the Brendan Shanahan's and the Steve Eisermans are, are ple- they're still pleading the fifth, even though they're Canadian <laughs> and, and we don't have we don't have the fifth. You mentioned COVID. Let me go there. Marilyn Gladue, you would know her. She apologized for comments she made about the COVID-19 vaccination. She started talking about the conservatives polio policy. I'm sure Aaron O'Toole is like, please don't do that. And he laid that out yesterday. I mean, what do we know? What do we not know? Has the coverage of this been fair? And was the apology something we just go, okay, like you can have your perspective, but, but the comments were irresponsible and she acknowledged that. 
Well, this is not the first time during the COVID crisis, the MP, and I'm on a weekly call with the county people around us here. This is not the first time she's put out things that she's had to retract. And uh, it's, it's very disturbing and it's embarrassing for this area that someone would propagate this. She did do the right thing by pulling it back. But even up to the day she pulled the apolo- put out the apology, she was still propagating uh, things that were not true. So it's, it's disturbing because when someone in public life is making comments like that, it, first of all, it undermines the rest of us who are trying to get people to vaccinate up and to do the right thing till we get through this. Uh, it also gives the people like the anti-vaxxers a platform to say, well, look, look what your colleague's saying. You're saying this, but she's saying that. So I'm glad it uh, it happened. I mean, really, in my own view, it was an insider. Uh, let's do a coup on O'Toole. Let's destabilize him. And it did, and it worked. And at least he's getting credit now for taking some actions against the MP and the other MP that uh, was on the same wavelength. Do you have con- personal conversations with her? I mean, you and I can talk about COVID for an hour, uh, have, have a beer, and maybe we'd agree on 15 things, and maybe we'd adamantly disagree on five. Like, nobody's in full alignment on everything that's happened over the last 20 months. But do you have personal conversations with her about this? Well, every Wednesday, and I will be doing one today, I presume she'll be on the call, the mayors of Lambton County uh, talk. Uh, I can say that we are totally, you know, a thousand miles apart on our views, mm-hmm. and uh, we are not friends. Um, it was disturbing, again, because it painted this particular writing as being redneck and out of touch, and it does not represent the viewpoint of the majority of people in this writing from what I'm hearing from them the last couple of days. They're embarrassed. I'm a big Sarnia defender, so I will not I will not tolerate that in the GTA. Uh, okay. so you've got an ally. Uh, uh, I used to do the play-by-play for the Saginaw Spirit, and now the Sarnia thing would, would kick our asses, you know, seven times out of eight every year. But I didn't, you know, I don't take that personally. That was that, that was a roster issue with a an expansion team, I suppose. Um, let me ask you about the, the PCR test. It's clearly something that people are talking to you about. Your hands are tied. Windsor, Drew Dilkins, mayor's hand, uh, his hands are tied. There's not much you can do except talk right now and and hope, I suppose, that the Canadian government says, let's lift this requirement. Um, and, and are you hopeful that could happen uh, quicker, sooner than later? I'm hopeful now. Uh, on Monday, uh, Drew Delkins and three or four other board of mayors, including on the other side and a congressman from New York, held a media conference. And all day we're getting that message out through the media, which is, is our message that uh, this is not a necessary test. And where I've been focused, it's not on the cross-border shopping or the people who want to go look at their cottage. It's been on many humanitarian cases we've been dealing with where people couldn't go to a parent's funeral or they missed weddings. And, and when the border opened up, we really thought, okay, that's it. The Americans do not ask their citizens for a test on the way back. And we're getting no pushback from the medical community on this test. In fact, Dr. Tam said that they are re-examining the test. And I do know our media push had an impact because this Friday afternoon, we're now going to have a conversation with the border security minister on this testing. And I think it's important. And the case I always make is, you know, in Sarnia on Thanksgiving Day for the U.S., there's probably a thousand people that go to the U.S. And I think we deserve the right to go see the Detroit Lions lose in person instead of watching them lose on television like we have been for the last two years. So there's, there's personal uh, motive in this, too, right? There is. Uh, yeah, they, they're playing the Bears. I mean, you've seen them play this year. So maybe nobody wins at a game like this, I suppose. But there will be a winner. There will be a winner, and everyone's always petrified. I used to go when the the Lions had that season 16 losses, and every team was petrified Mm -hmm. of them because, you know, you could be the one that loses. Now, the funny thing is if the the coach was on uh, that team, and he can break the record of the 16 because there's now 17 NFL games uh, a year. But but I'll also tell you, there's 1,000 fans that go to Red Wing games from Canada. What the Red Wings are doing, I just read it this morning. It's really creative. For 85 bucks, they'll give you a PCR test in the lobby. 
when you're leaving the game. So you can get back to Canada. But that's not the answer. The answer is mm-hmm. it's, it's an unfair uh, tax on people, and it's not necessary. We open the border. We should do the same thing the Americans did. It's, if you're double vaccinated, then you go and you come back. I would guess, uh, Mike Bradley, our, our guest, uh, Mayor of Sarnia on Toronto today, I would guess that what you saw Monday, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, is huge lines. But the lines were for people who were going to spend a week or two with relatives or see somebody they hadn't seen in 20 months or go to a cottage or drive even down to Florida. You're not seeing probably a lot of day trips or uh, or 24, 48 hour trips Monday and two. And so I'm guessing the traffic had the, the big pile ups on Monday. They've ceased to exist probably now this morning. You're correct, uh, Greg. It was the snowbirds, uh, snowbirders who have been waiting and waiting and waiting, and were, they were camped out here the day before. But the families that go back and forth, and you, know, and you know the situation, is that there's a lot of intermarriages. There's a lot of relationships. And that, that have been, has been put on hold now for the uh, last two years. So, yes, and it was done, by the way, I totally supported closing the border. It was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. But now we're at a stage where, you know, if you're double vaccinated and some of us are heading into the booster shot, then why can those people travel back? And, and again, it's humanitarian circumstances and not have this very punitive test. I mean, it's 200 bucks a person. So a family of four, it could be a thousand bucks to come back to your own country. Yeah, it's uh, look, it's been a, a very, very difficult time. I, I know I know from my experience briefly living in Windsor and knowing Sarnia enough, you get all these Americans uh, coming over to also drink before they were 21. And, uh, you know, again, nobody wants the call that all of a sudden their daughter's dating some dude from Port Huron. You know, that's true. <laughs> well, we used to do the reverse. <laughs> when the, the drinking age was lower over there, uh, that was our destination <laughs> to soak up American culture on a regular basis. And you could say, listen, I'm in for the green card. I mean, you're nice. I'm sure, you know, I'm sure our relationship will build, but a green card's a green card at the end of that. I moved down for the States for that reason, and I met a girl from London, Ontario. So you know what? Like, not everything works out the way you, th- you think it's going to. No, I've exported a several girlfriends to the United States uh, to better lives, so I know exactly what you're talking uh-huh. about. And, we'll, and next time you're on, we'll talk about that. And they'll be on also. This will be like uh, Oprah. I'll, I'll have them all uh, ready to go and, and chat with you about their existence. It's great having you on. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Greg. Thank you. Bye-bye. Mike Bradley, uh, Mayor of Sarnia, joining us. Exactly. All right, now and then you run into uh, World War buffs. Either World War One, World War Two, obviously World War Two. More recent, it's been more uh, dramatized. I remember, by the way, the last big movie we went to as a family was 1917, and that's great because that's pre-pandemic. That's the last movie we saw as a family before the pandemic. Uh, we wanted to do better at the Oscars. My kid was disappointed. Disappointed that 1917 didn't do better. I don't even remember what Best Picture was, but we remember 1917. Um, so, you know, it's remarkable also to tell new stories about the two world wars from different angles. And there's a great, great episode tomorrow night, an original doc um, about black Canadians and Caribbean soldiers working together in the Canadian Army during World War II. Black Liberators World War II premieres tomorrow night at nine o'clock we're lucky enough to have the director writer and showrunner for it adrian calendar joining me adrian it's greg brady thank you very much for making the time i know you're looking forward to to getting reaction to this tomorrow evening it's uh it's like opening a christmas present you probably can't wait for people to see this and be able to discuss it and talk about it i'm pretty excited uh greg uh thanks for having me on uh to start with um but yes of course i'm very excited for it i think this is a really important documentary for Canadians to uh, have a look at. When did the uh, the history in, in your mind, when did it sort of cross your radar, cross your uh, table, and you said, this is a story that, that I'd love to be involved in telling and amplifying? 
Well, that's a good question. Um, it's a bit of a long story, but I'll uh, shorten it for you. Um, at uh, Yap Films, the company I'm working with on the film, uh, they had done another World War II documentary called D-Day and 14 Stories. And in that film, uh, there was the discovery uh, while making the film of the story of a black soldier who was there on the beaches at D-Day. And so um, one of the executive producers here, Elizabeth Trojan, she started to do some research into the stories of black soldiers during World War II. And that's when she connected with Kathy Grant from uh, uh, Veterans Voices Project and uh, her, her Facebook, her Facebook um, um, uh, page. And so uh, uh, Elizabeth and uh, Kathy got together and started to talk about these stories. I mean, Kathy had been collecting all of these interviews with Black veterans for quite some time. Um, but, you know, she had a Facebook page and it was wonderful. But Kathy was also looking for a way to get these stories out there. And uh, she and Elizabeth began to talk. And at the same time, the History Channel was interested in telling the stories of Black soldiers during World War II and here we are. Yeah, it's on tomorrow night, nine o'clock on the History Channel. Uh, we're talking with Adrian Callender, who directed Black Liberators World War II. It's amazing what's what stands out to me from high school classes, because I remember a teacher uh, and I think in 12th grade uh, history talking about how black African-American soldiers um, would go and, and they they helped liberate the Netherlands. They helped liberate Holland by working. And it's remarkable, the sacrifice, because they're thinking they're looking around in the United States going, um, let <laughs> you know a little something for the effort here. We're not exactly first class citizens, but okay, we'll go and help you here. We don't document that enough, and it, and it's certainly it's it's a forgotten part of World War II in the United States realm of history, isn't it? Uh, I I agree, and I mean I can't speak too much about the American story. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I didn't do that much research on it for this film, but I what I can tell you is uh, you know a lot of the same. Uh, issues, uh, of course, not in the same way because America is a very different place than uh, Canada. But I mean, the soldiers in this story uh, tell about their lives in Canada before the war started and the challenges that they faced, uh, not just, you know, like encountering racism and discrimination in Canada, but, you know, obviously also just trying to find jobs as young Black men and women in Canada at the time. It was very challenging for them. Um, so, you know, here they had all of these uh, uh, internal conflicts, personal conflicts about being Black in Canada. And then along comes World War II and Canada is asking for its young men to serve. Um, and regardless of uh, their conflict, their internal conflict about, you know, being young and being Black in Canada, these young men stepped up and um, they went off to fight and to defend, defend Canada and the world against the terrible, terrible ideology. It's rather remarkable, too, because we think about, um, you know, what we know about the Korean War or the Vietnam War. And, and yeah, some of it is, is what we know is from dramatizations in movies. But racial tension existed in the 60s, in the 70s. Clearly it did. I can only imagine in the late 30s, early 40s, getting towards the end of World War II, some of the prejudice, some of the racism that, that these black soldiers had to deal with even from their own, their own, in essence, teammates, and even from their own collaborators and, and, and Canadian soldiers. And that's true. Um, but the, the interesting thing as well, I mean, I think we can't ignore that fact, 
Um, but the interesting thing that uh, Kathy Grant discovered in the interviews that she conducted with many of these veterans. And then as I watched um, all of these archives that she had collected and went through many of these interviews, one of the other really hopeful things that I found um, was that the soldiers themselves spoke very, very uh, warmly of mm. their relations with other Canadian soldiers, you know, of all races who were serving alongside them. Um, the uh, So, you know, they went through this period before the war where, of course, you know, as Canadians, as Black Canadians, they're struggling with that. Um, and during the war, they go through this mm. terrible experience and bond with other soldiers of all racial backgrounds. Um, uh, I'm not going to say it was perfect, <laughs> far from it, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. um, and then coming back to Canada after the war, they came back with a different sense mm. of themselves. Um, uh, but, you know, in many ways, the country hadn't moved forward as much as they had coming out of the war. So they still, after the war, had to um, deal with all of the challenges, right, um, of being Black in Canada. It's like, you know, back to another fight. Yeah. One fight over, back to another. Back to another harsh reality. The show's Black Liberators, the Docs Black Liberators, World War II tomorrow night. I got only about a minute left, but I want to ask you about, um, you did a phenomenal doc for Discovery Channel called Combat School about young soldiers training to go off to Kandahar, Afghanistan. So I'm sure with everything that happened in real time, leading the day, leading the headlines in August, um, that that made you, you know, wistful and that made you think retrospectively about that documentary and how you'd see soldiers saying this was all for nothing. We, you know, this is the last thing we wanted to do was to turn the country back over to the Taliban. I'm sure the reality of the news hit you hard, Adrian, putting as much work in as you did and getting to know these these soldiers. Uh, yeah, you know, that was uh, uh, another wonderful film um, that I worked on with the company out in Vancouver. Uh, yes, it was uh, really, truly heartbreaking. I think we all felt that, huh? you know, like that seeing mm -hmm. the collapse of the Afghan government and the Afghan army, it, it was it, it was pretty tough. And definitely the young men that I worked with on that film, the young soldiers that I met, they were all really, really wonderful guys. And I'm, you know, uh, it's uh, tragic. Yeah. Um, what, I'm sure that they all feel, they, they feel it as well because they met uh, and worked with some wonderful people over there as well. Um, it's yeah, truly tragic. Yeah, I'd love to talk with you more about it uh, when we have more time. Congratulations on this one. We hope uh, it uh, it gets seen by an awful lot of people tomorrow night. People, get your kids out of your bedrooms. Watch it with your kids. Black Liberators World War II tomorrow night at 9 o'clock on History. Uh, you can watch it live and on demand with Stack TV, also through the Amazon Prime Video app or Global TV app. Thank you very much, Adrian. It's great to make your acquaintance. Thanks for doing such important work as well and sharing it with our audience. Thank you very much, Greg. You bet. Anytime. Adrian Callender, uh, our guest. Something we'll uh, dive into a little more tomorrow, and we'll do uh, things we're not talking about. Um, an article in McLean's, an opinion piece by Shannon Proudfoot, who's an excellent writer. Um, but the headline, the pandemic is breaking parents. And Shiba, you re, uh, retweeted this uh, out to uh, your audience, and I read it too. Um, and I, I talked to a lot of parents that had a lot of opinions of it. How did it land for you? It hit home for me. She just, she hit the nail on the head with this. Everything she says in it is exactly how we've been feeling. She put it so honestly and vulnerably and 
I completely agree with it. I, I want to read you some, a part that really just touched me. Okay. She was describing the second shutdown uh, in the spring of 2021. And she says, week after week, my husband and I tried to work while giving our seven-year-old the bare minimum of attention and company we could spare as she sat through the dystopian hell of online grade one. She wandered around the house like a sad little ghost. <sighs> Watching her swing alone on the tree in our front yard for recess broke my heart daily as I failed at both working and parenting simultaneously. Yeah. This is so true. This is exactly how all of us have felt watching our kids slowly have their personalities and their life and their laughter die during those lockdowns. So you and I talk about masks and how you want the masks off the kids. And I tell you, I don't care what it is. Keep, keep them in school. I don't care if they have to wear masks. I hate sending my kindergartner to, to school in a mask. 100%. But, yeah. But I don't want him home on that screen ever again. Yeah. No, we, we don't, we don't want people. Um, it, it's, it's such an emotional topic. And it's a weird one too, because she writes about having a five-year-old and a two-year-old. And I would make the case that, it, you know, everybody goes through their own struggles. I'm watching a kid that couldn't grade, graduate grade eight normally, had his grade eight year up, up, upheaved. Uh, and then he's almost been through, well, he's been through a year and a half of, of a four-year run in high school where like, I won't remember this uh, as like some as she describes it, dystopian nightmare doesn't mean her feelings aren't real and yours are, but I, but I'm worried about where it, where it lands for my kids. Right. That's what we're worried about. It's just the scar tissue. And I couldn't tell you if it's going to affect a 16 year old more than a four year old. I don't know. I've heard both oh, sides of it. We won't know for we a long, know. I think it's, but it's going to affect them. Maybe not equally I, in different ways. It is going to come out. Obviously as adults, they're going to look back at this time. They're going to have very different experiences on it, but that was one of the most difficult parenting experiences of my life. I never want to go back there. I never want my kids to go back there. And I have four. So at the end of the day, they were I've all outside. I, I've, I've sw- heard that rumor. Yes. Swinging on that swing. At least they had the four of them. My friends who don't, who, whose kids didn't have siblings. Solo I, kids, only ch- children. I, that has been really rough. Because, yeah, oh. at the end of the day, my two have each other. Your four have each other. I, but I, I would say this. I know we're tight for time. Well, let's expand this out more tomorrow because I think everybody can relate to it. I think if you show, and I'm sure you have, you show confidence as a parent and you are bold and brave and, and you stay upbeat, your kids will feed off that. I think kids are sponges that way. It's like if they see parents who, who are starting to have problems or divorcing, like things get argumentative and they're like, oh, that's how dad handles an argument. That's how mom reacts. Like it's then it makes them resilient, that, right? Yeah, whether yeah. it's a divorce, whether it's you know a passing of a parent, whether it's shutdowns and sitting at home, these kids are going to be resilient. All of them that have been through this. But I think so. I think you have to have a strength, and I wouldn't, you know, again, she's trying. She wants you to emote that way from that article. I wouldn't want to read someday. Oh, mom went through a dystopian hell, and and I just thought it was oh, okay. I stayed home and watched more TV, and maybe we <laughs> think it's like it's it's like missing a two year old's birthday. You feel worse about it than your kid does. Your kids. Never never going to remember that and hopefully our kids black some of this out to be perfectly honest because we're going to have to as parents we we're going to have to but i'm going to fight you to and tooth and nail regarding keep if the kids have to wear masks to stay in school wear the masks okay the great question is are they doing anything <laughs> well, that's a whole other conversation a we're whole out of time three brady and a half hours. <laughs> 
Hey, thanks for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. Please do subscribe. Rate us there as well. It'll come right to your phone, right to your inbox, and you can get a listen to it and listen to what you want to, move through some of the rest of it. But either way, it's in your uh, mailbox every day, five days a week. Great to have you listening. We'll be back with a live show tomorrow on Remembrance Day, no less, between 5.30 and 9 on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Thank you for listening. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.